Hello, and welcome to another episode of Triple Bladed Sword, the podcast that looks at the science fiction, fantasy, and horror that we read, watch, and play. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Prashana McEwen University, and this is the second episode in a series of 100 Years of Horror. Last time we looked at the silent classic F.W. Murnau and Alvin Grau's Nosferatu. This week, we jump to the 1930s. We're, we're taking decade leaps as we move through this series uh, to the equally classic Universal Pictures horror film. Uh, some would call it the pinnacle, The Bride of Frankenstein. Before we jump into talking about this week's movie in particular, I want us to get a sense of where it fits in the history of horror. When this week... Looking at the 1930s, we are uh, in the what some would call the, the golden age of horror. Um, although there are there are certainly film historians who reject the idea of any of the periods of horror being a golden age. This is where we get the classic ideas of what Dracula looks like and what Frank the Frankenstein monster looks like. The Halloween costume monsters of my youth, anyway. Uh, I don't know if kids still dress up as Dracula or Frankenstein or the Wolfman or the Mummy, but uh, when I was a kid, we did. The universal horror monsters were uh, seemingly ubiquitous. Uh, books at the library, books at the sometimes convenience store, or I remember buying a, um, a book that was like a picture book on, on horror that, that was a survey, and all these black and white images from the classic universal years. Picked that up at a, at a co-op, uh, like a Safeway. Um, and these these were the monsters of the 1930s. And it all began with with uh, with a, uh, the Todd Browning version of Dracula, which was based on a very uh, successful stage adaptation of Dracula. And um, in no way owing any debt to Nosferatu, which to some degree had gone underground and been largely forgotten uh, already by this point. Um, the same year, because of the huge success of Dracula, Universal Pictures released Frankenstein, a, the, the movie that is the precursor to the film that we're going to watch or we're going to talk about today, um, starring Boris Karloff, but you wouldn't have known from the opening credits. He's not, he's not credited in the opening credits of the original film. It wasn't that they were like trying to hide who was playing the monster. They just trying to, you know, sort of create some mystique about it. Um, but Karloff's name was clearly already uh, synonymous with horror. And we can start using that term at this point. That's something else that we should know, um, that the, um, the uh, the idea that Nosferatu is proto-horror, that we can't really consider the German expressionist films as horror because there wasn't a term for it, there wasn't a genre to slot it in. By this point, there was a genre, and Universal was building that genre. Uh, they were the studio to compete with if you wanted to be doing horror movies, and we'll want to talk about studio pictures at some point today. Um, but they they followed up, um, you know, Dracula and Frankenstein in the same year. The following year, Karloff played the Mummy, 
And then we got um, The Invisible Man in 1932. And um, you, you can see Carl Lemley's name on each of these films. And Carl Lemley was a an entrepreneur, really, who looked at what was going on in early film where you would pay an, a nickel and you would go into a Nickelodeon, that's what they called them, and you would look through a viewfinder and you could watch a movie by yourself, one person at a time. And Lemley was one of the people who recognized that if there was a way that you could project this film, you could get a lot more butts and seats and you could make a ton more money. And he did. And he formed Universal Studios. And his son uh, was running the, the, the company by the time we get to 1935 and The Bride of Frankenstein. Now, we should know just a little bit about the studio uh, the studio approach to making films. The studio era of movies uh, is this time when you have companies like Universal Studios and they have a roster of directors. Um, the people who own the studio are often the producers. Uh, Carl Lemley's name is on the poster for Bride of Frankenstein, but he wasn't actively involved in the film side of the business, uh, by this by this point, he he was he was starting to um, <clears throat> leave that to his son, and so we get an an obvious production uh, credit for Carl Lemley Jr., uh, whereas his father was was the man who had built the company and Junior was running it by this point. Well, Lemley was actually engaged in, in, um, in, the, next, in the years that followed, uh, 1935, in getting Jews out of his, uh, home, uh, his home city. Um, and he rescued something like 300 people. Uh, and that's, he, he, was, he was dumping funds from uh, Universal Pictures into that. So this is sort of interesting little aside. Uh, and I think a fascinating piece of history that is terribly relevant to some of the um, meanings that surround The Bride of Frankenstein, readings of The Bride of Frankenstein. The Bride of Frankenstein was considered a sequel by everyone but the man who made it. Uh, and we also need to know a little bit about where things had gone, not only with the studio uh, system, but the production code. And that features directly into how this sequel, not sequel, um, begins. Um, we see at the beginning this, this picture approved by the production code administration of the motion picture producers and distributors of America. Um, the production code, also called the Hayes Code, um, by one of the people who had suggested that it come into effect, um, began uh, being talked about in the early 30s, 1930, but it wasn't until 1934 that they really uh, brought a lot of the rules and regulations into play. And this was an industry standard that if you wanted to make a motion picture that was going to be distributed by normal means, you had to adhere to. And it was a way of clamping down on uh, sort of the Hollywood Babylon of the 1920s. Uh, things had gotten out of control, not only on screen, but off screen. Uh, but that's a whole other story. What we need to know is that the Production Code Administration was about censorship. It was about uh, restraint. And there are those who would say that it is this restraint that drove creative minds like James Whale, the director of The Bride of Frankenstein, to greater creative heights. That if, if they'd just been allowed to do whatever they want, wanted, we wouldn't have gotten what we get with The Bride of Frankenstein, which uh, many 
um, horror aficionados and even, we might just say straight up film historians, think is one of the greatest either horror films of all time or just greatest films of all time. There are film historians who who would put it on the same level as Citizen Kane. So it's considered one of the greats. And some of those film historians think it's the production code administration that pushed creative minds like James Whale to make great films because they had to find other ways to say things than just saying them that uh, censorship produced greater creativity uh here we you know early in the film with the, the during, over the credits carl lemley presents karloff uh, within just a few years just five years boris karloff unnamed in the original opening credits to frankenstein is now the name that gets the butts in seats uh, and he doesn't even need a he doesn't even need a first name. He's just Karloff, right? Um, incidentally, in case you didn't know, um, Boris Karloff would go on not only to star in many great movies and some bad ones as well, but he's also the voice of the Grinch in the original cartoon uh, version of the Doctor Seuss Christmas classic. Uh, a great choice, I think, for a Grinch. I think uh, recent Grinch films could maybe take a page out of um, the producers of that cartoons book and go find someone who's worked a lot in horror. Get the voice of a monster to be your Grinch, not the voice of a comedian or a uh, respected thespian. Um, who was James Whale? James Whale was uh, the man who had directed the original Frankenstein. He, he had tried to direct a bunch of other pictures. Well, he had directed a bunch of other pictures. When I use tried, um, his other films hadn't been terribly successful. And so he was forced to come back to horror, uh, as he put it, to fantasy. And it really wasn't what he wanted to do, but the, uh, Carl Lemley Jr. was able to get him on board with Bride of Frankenstein by offering him the gig of directing a movie called Showboat, which was based on a great, uh, very, very popular Broadway play. Incidentally, Showboat is the film that more or less sunk the Lemleys. Uh, they put something like three-fifths of their uh, yearly budget into producing Showboat and had to go to, the, uh, go to a, a loaning uh, uh Somebody they had to go to somebody else. I, I don't want to get into the details of who that is, and but those people took over. They took over Universal. Lem, the Lemleys were out after Showboat, and so Bride of Frankenstein is one of the last films that the Lemleys were actively involved in creating for Universal Studios. But James Whale didn't want to be on board. He did not want to make a sequel to Bride of Frankenstein, and uh, didn't really consider the movie a sequel per se. He considered it something else. He considered it his way of taking um, horror, which had become hugely popular. It was it was a, it was you know a, a, an excuse to print money, as they say. And he wanted to do something new with it. He was, he was innovative um, and was interested in doing something that had, had never had never really been seen before, uh, which we can maybe class as one of the first great horror comedies. The movie opens, unlike its original, with a frame narrative. And this frame narrative is one of the things that not so much the production code was responsible for, but there were some Catholic priests in Los Angeles who apparently suggested that the original Frankenstein could benefit from a prologue. Uh, they thought that'll tone down the horror, because if it's, if it's just made up, 
This is the thing about frame narratives, right? If you have somebody telling the story or, you know, in The Wizard of Oz, Dorothy, it's just a dream because in Baum's book, it wasn't just a dream. It really happened to the Dorothy of Baum's imagination, the original Wizard of Oz as, as text. But in the film, they wanted to tone down the fantasy because uh, fantasy wasn't, apparently wasn't popular. And yet at the same time, Bride of Frankenstein, hugely popular. Uh, the, and these other horror films, which could be classified as dark fantasy at the very least, um, you know, doing a successful uh, trade. But it, it, there are a number of film historians who seem to think that James Whale felt like, okay, this time around, let's use, let's use that. Uh, let's use that frame narrative wherein we've got Lord Byron and Percy Bysshe Shelley and, of course, Mary Shelley, played by uh, Elsa Lanchester, who would also play the bride at the end of the film. So there's this dark doubling, uh, as Anne-Marie Adams calls it, this dark doubling in this film. And this was something that was, that was planned early on. Uh, they had considered a number of, of actresses for the role of the bride, but then realized, you know, most of these actresses are just faces. They are physical presences. They, they, they're, not, they're not actors. And so instead, they, they went with Elsa Lanchester who had the chops to be able to do the opening sequence. Uh, and as we'll see, the chops to be the bride. So we get this, this, uh, this opening sequence. We, we, see, uh, we see Minnie here for, for just a very brief moment, uh, walking the dogs out of the shot. And so there's a little bit of that Oz thing going on here where we have these doubles. They, they show up here at the beginning. They show up later in the film. Uh, the other actors in this sequence do not show up later in the film. But it, it allows for uh, a last time on Frankenstein montage of footage from the original film, some footage that um, was cut, uh, even, <clears throat> and it allows for a, re a, pre a review for those who, who, who wouldn't know the story. I don't know who those people would have been in 1935, uh, because Frankenstein had been such a hugely successful film. Uh, that's why they made Bride. They were, you know, the Universal Studios was finding that all these other monster pictures were doing all right, but they weren't doing the same kind of traffic that a return to the hyper-successful Frankenstein uh, might achieve. And so that was what drove the sequel. But we get this, this last time on uh, montage catching us up in terms of story so that we're ready when uh, Elsa Lanchester, as Mary Shelley says, uh, you know, it it didn't end with the monster dying. It didn't end with the death of his creator. No, no. Let me tell you the rest of the story. And um, so what we get at the beginning of this film, and this is a, a quote from Alberto Manguel, who wrote the BFI film classics book on Bride of Frankenstein. He says, it is this, this film uh, is then within the diegesis, the, the universe, the fictional universe of the movie, explicitly Mary Shelley's story. That doesn't mean that it is, it is um, fidelitous to the actual Mary Shelley's story, but rather it is the story being told by the Mary Shelley of the diegesis of this film. Um, so Manguel says it is explicitly Mary Shelley's story, an imagination or a nightmare, a forbidden version of the author herself, uh, which is, I think, a really, really interesting way of, of reading this movie that we are reading uh, not the first film where there was this sense in which it had really happened somehow. It's, it's fascinating to me that anybody would ever think that a frame narrative would downplay the level of fantasy that a film produces, but 
At the same time, I think we all experience the, the hyper-realism of film because it captures real things, as it were. Right? We, we capture real actors and real sets and you know, real fire in this movie. So those realities challenge our sense of being able to step away from our suspension of disbelief um, that we are so caught up in the, the, the fictional world, the diegesis of the film, that sometimes we can forget that it's only a story, that it's just a fiction. So we get this, this, uh, this frame narrative that uh, is only at the beginning of the film. We don't get the frame at the end, so it doesn't perfectly frame the movie. Uh, and that has a lot to do with what Whale wanted to do with the ending of the film. He wanted it to lack resolution. When he went to talk to um, Waxman, the, uh, the composer of the film's music, uh, he, he said, I want you to compose me some music that does not resolve. So even the, the soundtrack was supposed to lack resolution, so we would not come back around to this frame narrative at the end. So Shelley jumps us to the, you know, the ending of Frankenstein with the, I, I think, somewhat iconic image of the burning windmill, which Tim Burton would uh, reify with uh, the imagery in his 1990s uh, horror film Sleepy Hollow. Um, but we find out that the monster's not dead, didn't burn in the mill, was, he fell down underneath into this um, grotto, uh, this grotto basement filled with water. I love the emergence of the monster. When uh, I was watching this film and trying to imagine how it could have been horrifying to original audiences, uh, the monster's hand coming out of that dark, shadowy a little crevasse, a little little crack off to the side, um, emerging from those shadows, uh, looking worse for wear. You know, his hair's been burned away. Um, but Karloff looking diabolical enough uh, to certainly horrify viewers in 1935. And still, if we are being the sympathetic viewers that I talked about in the last lecture, uh, to give us a sense of, of disquiet as we, as, we, as we see the monster for the first time. Monster murders uh, the parents of the little girl that he inadvertently killed in the first film. Th throws this girl into a lake and drowns her, a scene that was excised from a number of prints of the film because it was considered too horrifying for the viewers at the time. And yet the film references that and the production code uh, uh, the keeper of the production code, Joseph Breen, did not ask for that to be removed. There was a ton of other things Joseph Breen asked for the removal of. <laughs> James Whale uh, just filmed every death that he could and said, let Joseph Breen sort it out. <laughs> and Joseph Breen did. The original uh, film would have had 21 deaths. And what we get in the, the finished... 21 on-screen deaths, what we get in the finished film are 10 confirmed on-screen deaths. Uh, so we can see the, the results of that. But Whale went for every possible death that he could. And, it, and the film really begins on, on, a, on a dark tone in killing the parents of the little girl that the monster inadvertently killed in the first film. Like, he didn't really mean to kill her, but, you know, you kill a little girl, that's like one of those, like, serious taboos, killing kids. Serious taboos. Frankenstein did it. And then in the second movie, just as, you know, like, well, hold my drink. Uh, the movie begins by killing those parents off. It's as though it's, it's saying right off the bat, uh, just so you know, we still mean business. And that's probably good given where the movie goes next in delivering its blend of melodrama, uh, horror melodrama with comedy. 
the camp comedy that runs throughout this film um, in in several of the performances, but also in in uh, in some of the, the the way that the scenes are staged. And this is one of those great moments where we've just seen the monster kill two people, and then he comes up behind uh, the actress Una O'Connor playing the what is she mini like she's everywhere she's like a greek course of one um and she had played uh the housekeeper in the invisible man and she's doing some of the same shtick in this movie so she turns around and looks up and it's great it's it's just great a great physical moment for Karloff looming over her and then she goes into this comedic scream helping us to see that this is not the film that viewers saw last time there was a number of of films film uh historians who recognized that whale knew that in the five years since the huge success of the original frankenstein that there's huge level of expectation so he didn't give the audience everything they wanted he gave them a number of things that they wanted but he made something new something that uh that wasn't just a sequel but was its own film uh and uno o'connor i absolutely love her i know that there this this is like one of those love hate performances but uno o'connor as mini kills me i think she's absolutely hilarious and i laughed out loud when she discovers that uh dr frankenstein is not dead uh, but rather, you know, he's just unconscious. When she yells, he's alive, alive. She's echoing Colin Clive's famous line from the original Frankenstein movie. And, and Colin Clive's going to say it too, but you can imagine that this is one of those those um, catchphrases. Like in the 80s, you know, we were all saying, I'll be back uh, off of the, you know, Terminator film. Um, and then we did it again when the, when the second movie was released. And you get these catchphrases from films, from TV. And at the time, it's clear that this had become a bit of a catchphrase. It's alive! Alive! And it's, it's been used in... Uh, it was used in, in, the, in the film Weird Science, the 1980s movie uh, Weird Science, um, referencing Bride of Frankenstein in so many ways. But I love Una O'Connor's performance. I think she's great. Um, and then... Now that we know that, you know, Dr. Frankenstein's not really dead, we get to hear him say, oh, you know, I really shouldn't have done that thing that I did back in the first movie as he talks to his, uh, his, uh, his bride, um, his actual bride of Frankenstein. And, uh, and uh, he, he's, he's like, no, nah, I'm not going to do this anymore. Uh, but he won't, he, won't get to, he won't get to stick with that for very long because in rolls Dr. Pretorius. Now, if we have to pick a monster for this movie, we get to choose from three and obviously we've got the frankenstein monster clearly we've got the bride at the end we have to wait an awful long time for her but she's still there but i think pretorius is the true monster of this film uh mad scientists were all the rage even that year there was a film that had been released called mad love and uh these there was a you know, there was a there was a glut of mad scientists, and Pretorius is one more along the way. But he's played with such a plum by Ernest Thesiger, who was really an unknown at this point. But he would go on to become a known commodity in film, um, period film in particular. But he just eats up the set. He very nearly steals the show from Karloff. In fact, I would go so far as to say that he does. Uh, though I don't think that's Karloff's fault. I think that's the fault of um, Whale 
and the other screenwriter. Well, there were several screenwriters, eight writers on this film, but it's William Hurlbut and James Whale who produced the script that we that that the film was was made from, and uh, having the monster speak, uh, I think, is one of the things that reduces Karloff's uh, efficacy in this film. But Ernest Thesiger as the we might say Mephistophelian. Dr. Pretorius, and I love, again, I love Una <laughs> O'Connor, Pretorius? Uh, when she first hears his name, she has to say it over and over again. Uh, for comedic effect, uh, Manuel, uh, Alberto Manguel makes a, a great deal about how, you know, you have to name the devil a bunch of times before he'll appear. I, I, I just think they had Una O'Connor say it over and over again because it's funny. But and also to make sure that everybody in the audience would 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 have it, because you know Pretorius is a, is a great Latin name, uh, but not just it doesn't roll off your tongue like Bob. So it gets said over and over again. But Pretorius as this Faustian figure, this Faustian devil who comes to uh, Frankenstein with an offer: we should work together. He was he was Frankenstein's mentor, and now he says we should work together. And the shots of Ernest Thesiger as Pretorius are. are textbook and i'm not even using that as a sort of like ooh, they're textbook moments of horror lighting but they are and i say that you know that it's not just <clears throat> me making it as, as some sort of cliche um because the textbook that i use for introductory introductory film uh looking at movies by richard barsom and dave monahan includes a shot of thesiger as pretorius in the section of the book on lighting saying this is what horror lighting looks like. One of the shots from the end of the film when they're uh, bringing the bride to life. Just these wonderful shots. And he he is so invested in his performance. Um, and it's, it's a little bit funny and it's a little bit horrifying. Uh, so there are moments where you laugh because he does this wonderfully flamboyant um, Pretorius. But there are other moments where you're like, gosh, that's awfully dark, uh, you know, given what his, his goals are. Meanwhile, back in the woods, um, uh, you know, the Frankenstein monster has scared a shepherdess. She nearly drowns. He saves her. So there's a reversal of, you know, what he did in the first film. He realizes, I guess, that, you know, if you stay in water too long, you die. And he rescues her, but she's horrified by him. And then some hunters come along and they shoot at him. And so, you know, humans hate me. And he runs off uh, and he gets to this, this, this hill. And I think it's, I don't think it's any accident that we've got this, really cinematic looking crag uh, we might call it a Golgotha because this film is absolutely rampant with Christian imagery and not in a let's do the monster as Christ figure even though once the villagers capture him uh, we get a sort of crucifixion but we don't want to just jump to well he's a Christ figure he's an inverted Christ figure uh, he and this is something that Scott McQueen uh, film historian talks about in the commentary for uh, the Blu-ray version of Bride of Frankenstein. He says, we, we don't just have a slamming of the church here. We have an inversion of one of the foundational myths of Western society, wherein we get a resurrection and then a crucifixion, right? The monster is resurrected in the first film. He's crucified and vilified in the second in ways that echo um, Christ's crucifixion, so he's up on a hill, and then they grab the the cross of sorts, right? They put him on this 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 uh, beam, and then they take him away to imprison him. So there's this there's this reversal going on, but the the Christian imagery is throughout. Monster breaks loose, goes on a killing spree, absolute rampage. Uh, 
killing one and, and you know he doesn't he doesn't uh, he doesn't he doesn't uh, discriminate in his killing he kills young people old people you know he's he's inclusive we might say with his rampage of murder um, and so it's an interesting movie in the way that it keeps switching back and forth between these tones because we get moments again with Una O'Connor in that entire sequence where she's in and amongst all the villagers. You know, you wonder, like, did she get the day off from the work that she's been doing up at Frankenstein's uh, castle? And she just gets to run off and, and she's not the maid now, but she was she in town picking up bagels? I don't know. Um, but she's everywhere. And that's why I think she's she's sort of a, you know, a mirror the audience character in some ways. But Frankenstein escapes, goes on his rampage, ends up at a cottage in the woods, tranquil cottage in the woods, where he meets an old blind man. And again, we get this, this reiteration uh, of Christian imagery, again, inverted, twisted, messed with. Um, James Whale was not a friend of the church. Uh, James Whale uh, was, was gay. Um, and there are a lot of readings of this film that are queer. And I think they all, they, at least the ones I've read, tend to hold up really well. So a queer reading of this film responds well, uh, given that Whale seems to be injecting it with his own views on just about everything. Um, but in this case, religion and relationship. Because the monster and this blind man who cannot see his monstrosity, his disfigurement, uh, are going to become friends, right? We get this word friend over and over again. And I couldn't help but think, uh, and I, I didn't have time to look into the etymology of this, but I'm interested in Whale as British director, perhaps thinking about the synonym of mate and friend, right? Like we have the, the word mate for someone that you are bound to for the rest of your life through marriage. So the bride is ostensibly Frankenstein's mate. But what about the way in which British slang says, you know, me and my mates were hanging out. And so is there a way in which the friend here is a mate uh, as friend, but also as partner uh, coming out of out of Wales um, homosexuality? Uh, I don't, and I don't want to read these things as though it's like um, this then tells us that this is this about this film. Because like Alberto Menguel, I can't find a single concept that totalizes the, you know, it, that we can allegorize this film with. Um, there are moments where you can go, oh, that maybe we could read it like this. And yeah, you can. But the movie resists a totalizing uh, viewpoint. It, it, it's it's like reading um, Kafka's Metamorphosis. If you go in and you go, oh, well, this is clearly about the allegory falls apart at some point. Same thing with Bride of Frankenstein. These ideas hold for certain sequences and certain scenes, but they aren't they aren't kept consistent throughout the film. And I don't think that's a messy thing. I think that's a subtext thing. I think this film certainly works at the level of subtext. Uh, when we do these sorts of readings for meaning, um, this is a film that, that is all about subtext because the plot works as plot. Like this movie rolls along in a, and then this happens and it's exciting just for that. But we can't ignore that this old man, going back to the religious imagery of the film, um, where we get the bread and the wine, right? He, he holds up the bread and it's like he's serving communion um, or, or, you know, the Eucharist. And he breaks the bread and the monster eats it in this you know, over the top with this over the top gusto. 
and then wine, and he chugs it. Neither of those are the ways that you would receive communion. And then, it's, so it's like the bread, the wine, and it feels very, there's this sense of mmm and presence, and Waxman's score is, is, you know, it has these religious motifs in it, and the organ is playing in the background at one point. Uh, the editor highlights the crucifix on the wall and the fade-out. And then it's like bread, wine, and a cigar. And right there, it's, that's the punchline. And, you know, people have made a great deal about, oh, the smoking is this moment of friendship. And I'm like, it's the punchline. It's the punchline to a joke. Bread, wine, and a cigar. Like, I keep waiting for, for Karl, like, uh, I was going to say Karl Marx. I'm waiting for Karl Marx to come out and talk about socialism. Uh, I'm waiting for Groucho Marx to, like, jump out of the back of the picture at that point. Uh, more of that, that, that subtle humor that runs throughout the film. The monster's relationship, though, with the old man is abhorrent. Clearly, the, uh, you know, this, and that's, that's one of those queer readings to say, like, these two men are not allowed to live together. Uh, the hunters come in, and they're like, that's the monster, and they drive him away. Uh, again, repetitions of religious uh, iconography throughout this sequence when the monster first steps out of the, uh, the blind man's hut. There is a, a crucifix right next to uh, to where he's standing, or, or sorry, when he comes along, uh, comes upon these these children. There's a crucifix right off to the side, and then when he gets into the cemetery and runs through, there's a repetition of religious imagery: the angel, the whatever saint it is that he knocks over. The original script called for him to actually grapple with a crucifix, and the ratings board was like, "No, you," you know, the the production code was like, "No, you can't," you know. Joseph Breen said, "Uh-uh, there's enough blasphemy blasphemy in this film as it is." That was their big problem: was they were like, "There's all this blasphemy," but the things that they cut retain so much of Wales' blasphemy that I think he just, he's a very clever filmmaker sneaking in under what most people would be watching for. Uh, it's a, something I want to talk about just at this point is a, as we move through the film is how gorgeous some of this, the cinematography is. Um, the work that uh, cinematographer John Mescal did on this film is absolutely incredible. It's uh, done with something called Rembrandt lighting, uh, which creates these really hard contrasts, and we get to see that over and over again. Um, but I think the graveyard sequence and then the catacombs that follow is one of the, the great moments, really wonderful examples of this being done, where the way that the lighting was was pointed at the subject um, had the, created what uh, Mescal said was an eerie, mysterious atmosphere. Uh, we're working with the light from really odd angles and filling the screen with dark shadows. Again, though, a film filled with contrasts. One moment it's eerie, mysterious atmosphere, and the next moment it's Pretorius partying with the skull of a young woman. You know, and that's one of those moments where it's like, ah, it's funny and oh, it's really disquieting, right? There's some really creepy necrophiliac stuff going on here, uh, with with you know Pretorius's party uh, on a on a on a coffin, and even just the fact that he he goes down there and you think it's like, oh, he's going to rob the grave, but then he he hangs around afterwards. Like robbing the grave is sort of acceptable universal horror territory, but then having a smoke and drinking and laughing with the skull is a, is a whole new macabre. Um, in melodrama, we don't mind the, the crazy coincidence of Pretoria, Pretorius running into the monster and telling him, oh, hey, we're, we're making you a bride, um, making all sorts of new Faustian bargains, not only with the creator, but the created. And um, again, a little bit of humor 
I'll come back to what I'd mentioned earlier about Karloff's uh, speaking in this film. I think he, his performance is still fantastic, um, but there were all these compromises that they had to make to allow him to speak in the film for starters. He had a, he had a dental plate that he could take out and that was what made his face look so cadaverous in the first film. He had to have that in to say anything intelligibly. And so his cheeks are more filled out. So he's a healthier monster this time around. But Karloff himself was convinced that having the monster speak would reduce it in some way. And I can't help but agree. Me personally, the speaking moments of the monster don't really work. And uh, I'm, agreement, I'm in agreement with a number of film historians who say... Karloff's performance is so great physically, we don't really need him to say bread or friend, any of these things. Although the repetition of that word friend, as I've said before, I think is uh, um, an interesting thing to, to run down, that, that the monster seeks friendship. The monster, like Adam in, uh, in the uh, Hebrew Bible, in the book of Genesis, saying, you know, I... No, there's nobody like me. There's all these animals, but they're not like me. I want somebody who's like me. And so the monster is a, a another, you know, twisted icon of, of Western uh, religious um, imagery. So Pretorius and, and the monster are now in cahoots. The monster goes to, uh, he shows up at Frankenstein's along with Pretorius and they say, hey, you know, let's get, let's get to work on this. And, and Frankenstein's like, no, I won't do it. Um, and, and, Pretorius shows Frankenstein the monster and that he's, you know, he has speech and he's under Pretorius's control. Um, but the real leverage comes when the monster goes and kidnaps Frankenstein's wife when he kidnaps Elizabeth. And this scene of the monster standing outside prefigures so many moments of the monster standing outside a window from the revenant corpse that we have in the bride of frankenstein all the way up to the monsters of slasher films like halloween in this case we are voyeurs of the voyeur that's uh, something that uh, alberto manguel says at one point we are voyeurs of the voyeur um, but in john carpenter's halloween we become the we become we are in the camera view we are in that point of view uh, in movies like scream we're getting a reiteration of this moment but now uh rendered different just by the nature of the monster and the nature of the victim and what the monster is willing to do in bride of frankenstein the monster is willing to go in and steal elizabeth away in recent horror films the monster comes in and just stabs you to death or in the uh, uh kenneth Branagh. Uh, version of um, the Frankenstein story, the uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein starring, lamentably, Robert De Niro as the monster. He just tears Elizabeth's heart out uh, in in a scene that mirrors this. But, but it prefigures a number of moments in horror that are yet to come where a monster stands outside your window. And, and that's one of the scariest ones for me, by the way. That's one of my nightmares is the monster at the window. Uh, I hate covered... Uh, blinds or whatever at night i don't like opening them I'm, I'm better at it now but i mean i'm in my 20s i was often ridiculously uh terrified in the middle of the night by walking past windows because i was always afraid something was going to jump up and look at me through them uh i i blame salem's lot and the uh film of the, uh, the twilight zone there's moments in both of those uh where there's something at the window but now Frankenstein can't help but get involved, uh, and he and Pretorius set to work um, with diligence to create the bride. And uh, 
there's a lot of really great shots in the creation sequence that are echoes of that German expressionism. The way that the lighting is done, that Rembrandt lighting, uh, we see that the the influence of, of the expressionist um, filmmakers. Uh, not just that though, but the, the very camera angles, there's all these tilted camera angles throughout the sequence of creating the bride that the world has gone askew, as it were. As we see Frankenstein, there's all these this great cross-cutting back and forth between all these gadgets uh, around Frankenstein's uh, laboratory, and then Frankenstein himself, played by Colin Clive, uh, who was a wreck of a man at this point, by the way. Like, the reason he looks so haggard um, is because, sadly, he was an alcoholic and had to be supported on the set, bodily supported. There are shots where there are people just off camera holding Colin Clive up. It's arguably why he is often sitting or sitting up in bed in his sequences. But the reason he looks so absolutely haggard in this movie is largely due to his alcoholism. Um but uh, the great canted angles looking at Pretorius and, and again, Ernest Thesiger just leaning into it and playing up that, that mad scientist so very well. Um, you know, wonderful, wonderful shadowed shots with the light coming up from below. Great Vista style shots where, or not Vista, but these wide angle shots with really extreme angles looking down or looking up are all echoes of uh, that expressionist, that German expressionist influence in uh, in Hollywood. A lot of those filmmakers um, were either directly influenced by them or they were those filmmakers, German uh, filmmakers, having relocated to America to continue their work. Um, I love this sequence. I absolutely love this sequence. Uh, watching it um, and trying to capture stills for my slides uh, was challenging because the movie moves at a pretty slow pace for most of the film, but this sequence is just bam, 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 and editor Ted Kent's montage for the creative creation sequence is phenomenal. This is this is great work. So even if we can't recognize, again, if we can't recognize Bride of Frankenstein as scary, we can at least recognize it for its technical brilliance. Of, you know, for its time, technical brilliance, even with those moments where, you know, like the, the dialogue doesn't line up, like someone, there's somebody's voice, but there's no, you know, the dubbing is off. Um, that didn't matter as much. It's, it's about the visual. Um, and then we get the bride awakening herself and she's, she was modeled on, um, Nefertiti, Egyptian, Egyptian, uh, queen. And so her initial moment, she looks like, you know, the, the mummified monster. Um, but once she is unwrapped and unveiled, uh, Elsa Lanchester's wig is, is modeled on this, you know, the, the, uh, the idea of the Egyptian queen, as it were. And so she's, she's got this sort of monstrous and yet beautiful aspect to her. Um, as uh, uh, Anne-Marie Adams says in her article, What's in a Frame in the Authorizing Presence in James Whale's Bride of Frankenstein, she says, well, we've got this yoking of beauty and monstrosity. And I have wanted to see Bride of Frankenstein since I was a kid and just never have. I've seen the odd classic horror movie, but I chose Bride of Frankenstein because it appears on so many great horror lists, but also because it was the one I hadn't seen. I'd seen Frankenstein, but I'd never seen Bride. And I wondered, why is this movie so magnificent? Why is it so incredible? But I'd seen a ton of images of Elsa Lanchester as the bride. And so I didn't really expect to be surprised in any way. And I, like, I already know what she looks like, but it wasn't so much what she looked like 
as the way that Mescal, John Mescal, the, the cinematographer, captured her on film with Whale's direction and Ted Kent's editing again. When we see her unveiled and the camera does all these, like, well, I say the camera, but there are all these cuts. And in some of the shots, there's this really great, crisp, hard lighting. And then in other cases, there's soft, diffuse lighting. Uh, in one shot, she has something stuffed into her cheeks to make, to distort her features. Uh, and and then we get those bird-like movements, these these flashbulb style movements uh, as Elsa Lanchester just moves her head around. But that's also, that is um, accentuated by the editing, by these, these cuts that we get all these different angles and shots of the bride. And I found that so compelling, so captivating. On the one hand, simply because there's a sort of terrible beauty, the yoking of beauty and monstrosity that Anne-Marie Adams talks about. Um, and, but there's also a way in which the, the editing and the camera angles convey something about this monster's presence. And even though Elsa Lanchester as the bride is only on screen for a few moments, there's this way in which these shots, this scene, this sequence haunt, have haunted me since, and I can't quite make heads or tails of it. And I went to, um, I went to academic secondary sources, academic articles, asking like, you know, what do y'all think? Uh, wanting to know what someone else might say about it. Uh, coming back to Anne-Marie Adams, she says that Shelley's bland and lovely brow could imagine such horrors. So we go back to that frame narrative at the beginning, because she is part of such horror herself. She's the author of Frankenstein after all. So this monster is an echo of the monstrosity within Shelley that she put on the page. And she contrasts the hyper-articulate author of the frame narrative versus this hissing creature here at the end of the film. And the hissing, by the way, just as a sort of little bit of film trivia, was Elsa Lanchester's uh, idea. She was basing it on swans that she'd seen in, in, in the park. And, you know, anyone who's ever faced a swan will know they're terrifying. But she's terrifying. There's this way in which she is beautiful and yet monstrous. Um... Erin Hawley in The Bride and Her Afterlife, Female Frankenstein Monsters on page and screen, says that the bride problematizes cultural assumptions about what should be considered monstrous and beautiful. Problematizes cultural assumptions about what should be considered monstrous and beautiful. And we're looking at a time in American uh, history where there are these shifts going on. Women have the vote. Um, there is there is an emancipation of women going on, and yet at the same time there's still like repression happening. Right? Um, she she says the movements are jerky and halting, like those of a marionette or an automaton. What do we make of all these things? You know, is she is she controlled by her creators? The monster. She's she's been she's been she's a mail order bride in a way. I, that's not any of the other, those are not any of the sources. This is just me looking at this and going, you know, she's a mail-order bride. But um, Elizabeth Young in Here Comes the Bride, Wedding, Gender, and Race in Bride of Frankenstein talks about the social anxieties of gender, sexuality, and race that the film addresses. And she says that despite her secondary status as a creature of male fantasy, the bride betrays the fear that all female bodies are in fact 
unspeakably monstrous and in this monstrosity unspeakably powerful um and when she says that they're monstrous she's not saying like that whale was terrified of the the female body the world was terrified of the female body or at least the people behind the production code were terrified of the female body because you can't show uh elsa lanchester's um cleavage at the beginning of this film was one of the cuts so even though we do see her costume at various points, there it was apparently, and a lot of film historians talk about it, so it's not me going like, well, let me focus in on this particular irrelevant detail. Um, it's, it was a shot that really highlighted her decolletage. And the, 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 the production code said, no, we can't have that. And so there is a way in which society saw the female body as monstrous in some way at this point. Um, and there's so many ways for us to read that. I, I, I'm speaking about these uh, moments from these scholars more as a way of getting to where Alberto Manguel ends up at the end of his BFI film classics uh, book. Um, and he says, near the end of it, he says, and yet what exactly is the meaning of the strange man-made bride, that modern Eve beyond its sexuality? Who is this monstrous version of the angelic Mary Shelley, this transformation of the delicate Elsa Lanchester? Because this question is allied with the question that we are going to continue to look at throughout this series. This question, um, you know, why this horror at this time and this place, and this people. Like, what exactly is horrifying about The Bride of Frankenstein? Is it the monster? Um, again, Aaron, uh, sorry, not Aaron Holly. Elizabeth Young has argued that the creature, the Frankenstein monster, is, is marked not only by an undifferentiated otherness, you know, that he's the other, he's the outsider, but specifically by behavioral and visual codes associated with blackness. Um, Young is convinced that Karloff's Frankenstein stands in as a black brute filled with this rampage, rampage rage. Um, blacks were often figured in films as criminal, as inferior, as subhuman. These are all things that Elizabeth Young talks about and believes that, that Karloff's monster, as she puts it, may more fully emblematize the iconography of U.S. racism than any other film more openly mimetic could have in this era. And so she's saying that the monster, perhaps more than a film that would be directly about a black monster, um, and I'm putting that in air quotes, uh, could have in that era. Or even if it was a sympathetic perspective, would that have necessarily been received? So is it the monster? Is it is it Ernest Thesiger as um, Pretorius? Uh, this film isn't really about the usual mad scientist business. They've, they have pretended to be God. I mean, they, they, they dally with that, but I don't really think that's what this film is about at the end of the day. I think this film is about the fears of change, the, the way in which the world was changing and becoming more open. And we continue to see uh, the resonances of these, these, uh, this type of fear even today. But I don't think that this film can be read in a totalizing way. I think it requires a sort of multifaceted approach. And uh, Manguel mentions this at the end of his uh, film classics, and he says, uh, Whale's Bride is a work in search of significance and therefore inexhaustible. I don't know that I agree about inexhaustible because um, at the end of the day, this movie isn't about baseball. So it's not like you can make this film mean anything. There's only 
there's only so much of a horizon of expectation that any work, any narrative work, any literary work, any cinematic work can provide us. But I will agree that it is in search of significance. And I think it's that lack of resolution here at the end of the film, not narratively, because the film has a narrative resolution, but that Whale had meant for it not to. And there's this shot where we can see uh, Colin Clive off to the side of the set when the uh, laboratory is, is exploding, is is falling in on itself after the monster has thrown this switch to destroy them all. Because uh, the monster says, go ahead, you go and live, he says to his creator. Uh, and that ending was tacked on after the production code uh, said, hey, I don't know about that ending. Everybody dies. That's how the original film ended. Everybody dies. Um and the early preview of the film, there was also a sort of, wow, we'd really like a happier ending. And so we do get that happy ending. We get a happy heterosexual ending where uh, Frankenstein and Elizabeth get to live happily ever after. But that was not Whale's intent. Whale's intent was to end the film with everyone dying. And we get a snippet where we can see that. Now, I like to just go from what ends up on the screen. What didn't get into the film isn't really something that we can argue too far with. But we know that um whale meant for there to be this lack of resolution about this film and i i have to i have to think that he also meant for the meaning of this film to lack a full resolution rather that it it simply interrogates so many normal things um and it becomes a repository of how whale viewed these things but clearly it struck a chord with american audiences and british audiences at the time uh, it was hugely successful. Not as successful as the original Frankenstein, but certainly more successful than any other universal horror film had been to that to that day. And it continues to be praised as a great classic. And Neil Gaiman has this wonderful thing that he said about the film. He said, in reality, the monster and the bride live on. We've forgotten about Henry and Elizabeth. So Henry Frankenstein and Elizabeth have been forgotten. We don't really think about about Colin Clive all that much, except for it's alive, alive. But we remember the the monster and we remember the bride over and over again, uh, revisioned in children's books, in people, you know, dressing up in the costumes or something hauntingly beautiful about, about the bride. But I think that the film also lives on the monster and the bride live on because of these indeterminate questions that they provoke in us. And I think that that is where the unease uh, and if we want to say the horror of this film really lies. Next week, we go into the 1940s and we leave the past behind, literally uh, moving out of the gothic horror of Nosferatu and the Bride of Frankenstein into the contemporary horror of the cat people. We'll see you then. <laughs>